You're listening to The Art of KCF. This essay is called The Art of Collecting and was released as part of the Art of KCF newsletter. Issue 58, sent to email subscribers on November 15, 2022. Mama's first collection that I can recall were miniatures that could fit in a repurposed printer's block letter tray she eventually found and put up in the hallway of my most well-known childhood home in the Northeast Heights of Albuquerque. She taught me about the thrill of looking for trinkets and the joys of collecting. With the wisdom of adulthood, I now recognize that my time hunting craft fairs and garage sales for the little things she would find to put up on her special shelf was a safe activity. One where she would be in a good mood, and we wouldn't escalate past the constant tween and teenage tensions between us. These shopping experiences were unlike what would happen when we found ourselves negotiating over clothes in the junior section fitting rooms at Mervyn's. We rarely got mad at each other during craft fair exploration. Some of my favorite memories with Mama are the days we would be roaming the folding tables filled with handmade goods or wading through other people's junk, soon to become our treasures. I also remember the thrill in trying to find something for her collection and the vibration of pleasure, recognition, and validation I would receive when she would want to add that something I had spotted onto her special shelf. Space in that converted letter tray was limited. Every choice meant rearranging the current orientation of objects or possible displacement. But that thrill still surges through me today, either when I find something for one of my collections or when I spot something shopping with Hermanita I know she might like to acquire, who also caught the collecting bug from Mama. The art of collecting turns out to also be an act of curation. Until you overcollect and become a dealer of antique and repurposed wares yourself, there is a limit to the spaces that you might tend and the area by which your collections may fit. I've learned this as I've met my limits on the space capacity for my juice glass collection, nine sets and holding, my honey jars, steady at five, my tequila sets, five but much more room to grow there, and my expanding jadeite fire king dish set. My first and longest running collection is books, which I don't even tend to think of as a collection. To know me is to come up against a book in every room of the house. A true challenge for me to consider filling all 6,000 plus square feet of our country home with books. For some, it might already seem like I've accomplished that goal. As it stands, I've got my cookbooks in the kitchen, a library upstairs dedicated to the true home for books, a bookshelf in the living room for books in rotation, a special table where I keep my library books arranged in red and to-be-read piles. I've got a stack of the books I'm truly currently reading on my bedside table. And as I write this, I'm spotting one on the table by my chair in the sitting area, one on the kitchen nook table, and the one I brought over to be quoted from later that I've found myself carrying from room to room 
as if it is on a pilgrimage with me until I turn its last page. And let's not forget the guest suites are named after authors, so of course the Octavia Butler suite should hold her oeuvre. My studio has a special nook where I keep my art history reference books, and I take comfort in the pile I'm working through in stacks here and there as well. Some might find that collection to be a bit overwhelming, and I feel like it's shy a few thousand titles. Paintings and other artworks come up when you seek out the definition of a collection. A museum holds a collection of works, and so do private collectors. I've found so much joy in my small but mighty art collection. Prints and paintings, a collage, they're some of my favorite prized possessions. Roxane Gay spurred this exploration on collection because she recently wrote and edited a section in the Gagosian Quarterly Winter issue on black art. She starts the section with a very compelling essay called How to Collect Art. In it, she describes some of the challenges she has faced as she has attempted to navigate acquiring works through gallery systems. I was struck by how this was difficult for Gay, even after growing up with large-scale oil paintings of scenes from Haitian life on her childhood home's walls, and being the grand-niece of a gallery owner in Port-au-Prince. Of course, I'm not navigating New York or L.A. galleries like Gay is from my northern Midwest outpost, but I do get that sense of uneasiness that surrounds art, either the making or the selling of it. One of my goals is to be as open and transparent about what goes into my creative practice as possible so as to make it a more accessible possibility for aligned individuals to engage. Maybe it's my anxiety speaking, but I too have had dis-ease in art studio spaces. I too have wondered, do I belong here? Is this a place for someone like me? I have been uneasy in galleries with others' art on the walls, looking at price tags and scoffing. Who has that kind of money to pay for a picture? But a collector is gonna collect, and art is just as worthy of an investment as the knickknacks one seeks at the places one haunts for such homely adornments. I like the challenge of collecting a painting that is one of a kind. But again, I am also the kind of person who shops for clothes and accessories, ensuring I look like no one else. The great thing is, artists, including me, are often more than willing to work with you on a payment plan for paintings that feel out of reach. That is how I acquired Magic Forest Number no. 3 from Carmen Brune, a regional artist who was exhibiting in a gallery near me. I emailed her and asked if she would be willing to take payments toward the painting and she was more than willing to do so. And then, when I fell in love with Jonathan Thunder's Dear Woman Gets a Manicure, I emailed him too, and started working my way toward paying down the most expensive addition to my collection to date. Artists, it turns out, are also collectors of patrons, and both of these artists wanted to get to know the collector before entrusting their work to me. I like that too, replacing that typical one-way transactional norm of commerce with a more soulful exchange. The book currently making its pilgrimage with me is Philip Guston's writings on painting. In notes from a lecture he gave to the New York Studio School in 1965, he articulates his and others' paintings 
as a collection bound across time. To paint is always to start at the beginning again, yet being unable to avoid the familiar arguments about what you see yourself painting, the canvas you are working on modifies the previous ones in an unending, baffling chain which never seems to finish. What a sympathy is demanded of the viewer. He is asked to see the future links. Ah, to read the words of a painter who gets it, who knows that simply making a painting is never simply only making the painting. I wish I could reproduce the whole lecture for you here, because it's filled with so many gems, and paintings for Gustin in I Paint What I Want to See is not just about painting, but really about life. What if we saw our collections as not simply the act of grabbing and owning, but part of a larger cycle of the history of the things we choose to live beside? Gustin, like other painters, is preoccupied by the end of a painting, but it's because he knows the weight of beginning again and the burden of carrying on. He says, Everyone destroys marvelous paintings. Five years ago, you wiped out what you are about to start tomorrow. Is that not true of all our lives? Who knows what we did five years ago that we must now begin anew? In search of the marvelous painting, I am. Now that I've taken off, I want to keep collecting words and ideas and thoughts for you here to receive. Though I too am aware that the collection of these words meets the limits of the listener's attention, pushed to the limit on a computer, in your email, through your podcast delivery system. I know I have a limited time to collect your focus. In another lecture, Gustin is asked by an audience member as he works through slides of his paintings. If he remembers how long it took him to work on it, he responds, it was done in an hour and a half, two hours, or 30 years, either way you want to look at it. Up until recently, I was a little aggrieved by what I felt was the lack of art in my young life. I didn't have an auntie who ran a gallery. I didn't live with paintings my parents had collected on their walls. The painting I remember best from my childhood was a mural above the fireplace, primarily a landscape. My memory of it is that it was a southwestern desert scene with a woman figure holding a hat with a ribbon blowing in the breeze. My parents unceremoniously painted right over it. I recently did the same to a painting that was on a canvas gifted to me, so I get the impulse, but it still stings recognizing your work could just as easily be primed over by yourself or somebody else. Anyways, I don't have to feel so left out anymore because I didn't have the paintings then that I have now, both the ones I'm charged with ushering into the world as painter and those that I've welcomed into my home through patronage. While I didn't have paintings until my 30s, I've had a mama who showed me the way through the thrills of collecting and 40 years of practice. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Art of KCF. The Art of KCF is created, written, produced, and edited by me, Candice Creel Falcon, with musical additions by Mountaineer via Upbeat. 
For a full transcript of the audio, plus all the features of my newsletter, like book reviews, creative links that inspire me, and an update on what's happening in my studio, be sure to find me through the link in the show notes. Till next time, may the joy of creative inquiry guide your path.